Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. Today, we're going to talk about something a little more current. I've had some podcasts where we talk about velocity or we talk about the diamond water paradox, you know, things that are, they have a lot of staying power. They're not terribly current, uh, current events. But we're going to talk about markets and inflation and what people are doing and what the average person maybe should be doing as we enter into what looks like a, a new era for inflation, something we haven't seen in quite a while. First, I have to say up top, I'm obligated to say that this is not investment advice. I don't know you. I don't know your situation. And investment advice would have to take into account you and what your uh, tolerance for risk is, what your personal financial situation is, what your goals are. And I obviously can't do that only speaking to you through a podcast. So this is not investment advice. This is general conceptual stuff that I'll be talking about today. Now, my firm, Enduring Investments, does offer investment advice to high net worth individuals and firms. Um, but we're we're set up, we're not set up to sort of offer broad investment advice to, you know, a million people. Um, we would love to team up with that sort of firm that wants to offer inflation-aware investment advice to a broader audience, uh, but we don't currently uh, have anything directly uh, arranged like that. That doesn't mean that we don't have opinions, that I don't have opinions on that, and I'm going to share some of those opinions with you now. Um, certainly, I've done a lot of writing over the years about the inflation-aware investment portfolio and, uh, and sort of how to do it, but let's Let's first get some current context. Okay, so we've just it's at the it's December second, twenty twenty one, as I'm recording this, and we've just had a twenty to twenty five percent pullback in in energy uh, futures markets over the last uh, couple of weeks, and in particular in the last couple of days of November, and that happened because, well, who knows, right? But it's. You know, some of the excuses are, you know, the Biden administration released uh, some reserves from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. Um, there was some fear that happened to hit the markets in the illiquid day right after Thanksgiving, but some fear about the Omicron variant of COVID. It doesn't look like there's anything really to be terribly afraid of, but that didn't stop the markets from being afraid of another set of shutdowns. Um, you know, when you do get moves like this in, in markets, and we did have a pretty dramatic move towards the end of November, you, you do suspect fast money, algos, uh, gamma hedging, which is to say that dealers who are short options uh, end up having to, to sell more and to sell offs and buy more in rallies. And, um, uh, and so that contributes to the virulence of any particular move. There was some talk about the, the taper and the, whether the Federal Reserve will accelerate the taper. 
And and all those things sort of contributed to to dunking energy markets pretty dramatically over the last couple of weeks. Interestingly, retail gasoline prices have not moved down hardly at all. And um, they they probably will over the next month. But but what we have seen in the energy markets is not yet going to be reflected in in the inflation prints that that happened this month that are November's numbers and and probably not um, not fully in December's numbers that we get in, into January. But if energy prices stay low that lower uh, than they had been, then then that will eventually drag down headline inflation a little bit. Meanwhile, core inflation continues to rise and will continue to rise now for months and months and months because we're we have this following wind from rents and we have uh, this broadening in uh, in the price pressures that I talked about in my in my last uh, podcast. Um, I should say that I'm I'm skeptical of the Federal Reserve's sudden uh, coming to Jesus about the importance of of removing liquidity from the financial markets, the discussion about tapering faster and maybe raising rates sooner. Um, I don't think doves suddenly change their feathers in the way that we have seen. It's very easy to talk about how you're going to do this, but let's see what they think when the equity market is 25% lower, uh, as it probably will be if the Fed starts to be aggressively addressing inflation, which doesn't I don't think is going to happen anytime super soon. Um, break-evens uh, are lower, mostly or largely because of the decline in energy and the fact that they had been fairly high and at levels where traditionally people who follow inflation break-evens and who follow inflation have traditionally sold when the 10-year gets up to two and three quarters percent, uh, 10-year inflation expectations. And that's that has tended to be a good deal over the years. And so there's some knee-jerk selling. Um, but 10-year expectations at two and three quarters and current inflation is over six, it's going to be hard to be aggressively selling two and three quarters when you have such high monthly outturns. All of which is to say that I think that even though the term transitory is now officially dead. Even the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, Chairman Powell, has has said as much that we need to retire the term transitory. Uh, you heard it here first, folks. Um, but even though that we're now all recognizing that inflation is not going to suddenly go back to one and a half percent, we're still seeing this this downward pressure on break-evens. I, I think that is going to be transitory. I don't think we're going to see break-evens and inflation expectations suddenly retreat to where they they were in the summer, uh, for example, because because I don't think that the underlying inflation pressures are going to, to fade away soon. And the longer they're around, the more they change behavior. Hey, speaking of behavior... Um, behavior is changing. You know, we're hearing from companies that they are raising prices, and they're raising prices frequently, not just once every four years, but but some consumer products manufacturers are are putting up prices quarterly, and they're sticking. Those prices are staying, and so that teaches them that raising prices is something that people will accept at this stage. Um, 
And you're seeing it in other places as well. You're seeing it now in, interestingly, and I think significantly, in collective bargaining. Uh, Deere had a, a work action against them where the union ended up agreeing to not only a, 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 an instant bump in pay and programmed 5% increases over the next couple of years, um, but also, uh, and significantly, the agreement included a cost of living adjustment. And, and if you look back to the 80s, that was very, very common in collective bargaining arrangements um, that they tended to have um, cost of living adjustments. So when inflation goes up, you automatically get your bump in pay. And the dear uh, 5% bumps go on top of that cost of living arrangement. So we not only are, so they're, they're, they're defending their real uh, incomes and not just their nominal incomes. And that's a change in behavior to think in terms of what that purchasing power over the life of this contract, what the purchasing power of that pay is going to do. So that's, that is significant. And if we see other, other union shops uh, have the same sort of outcome, that will, will be even more significant. Again, the longer that inflation sticks around, the more people uh, start to get comfortable with new structures or old structures rolled out anew and, uh, and, to, and to restructure their economic arrangements in such a way that tends to make inflation persist longer. And look, in the last podcast uh, called How Many Swallows Make a Spring, I argued that the evidence is, is becoming increasingly clear that, that we are in a new distribution, that inflation is no longer going to, to be, we've moved out of the era where inflation was one and a half to two and a half percent kind of, you know, for two decades. And we're now in a phase where maybe it's three and a half to four and a half, maybe it's three to four, but it's a new higher level of inflation. And it means that behaviors are going to change. And, and by the way, investment behaviors are going to change. And so, you know, what are the implications for investors? Let me let me list a few of them. And again, this is not specific investment advice, um, but sort of generally, conceptually, some of the implications for a new era of slightly higher inflation or significantly higher inflation. First of all, as an investor, you're going to have to become inflation aware the days of ignoring inflation are over. Literally, since the early 1980s, it paid investors to do nothing about inflation. Because when you do, when you do nothing, when you don't make any investments to, to protect yourself against inflation, you're exposed to it. And if inflation turns out to be higher than what's embedded in financial markets, you lose. But conversely, if inflation turns out to be lower than what's embedded in financial markets, you win. And so from 1980 until roughly 2021, it paid to ignore inflation. Inflation was, for all of the 1980s and the first part of the 1990s, inflation was persistently lower than the a priori, the in advance expectations that, that investors had. And so investors 
persistently won if they did nothing about inflation. And of course, they got trained to ignore inflation. But we aren't in that world anymore. You're going to have to be inflation aware. You need to think about asset classes, not sectors. Uh, People ask me, you know, what sectors should I invest in if I want to protect myself against inflation? What equity sectors? And the answer is, you shouldn't be investing in equity sectors. You shouldn't be thinking about in those terms. You know, residential REIT dividends are probably correlated with inflation. They, not probably, they are correlated with inflation, but REITs themselves are not because there's a price multiple that gets attached to, to those dividends and to those earnings. The earnings of different, you know, of companies that are, you know, inflation-protected companies even if their earnings are protected, when inflation goes up, uh, then you end up having lower price multiples attached to those earnings. And so maybe REITs, maybe inflation-protected companies don't go down as fast, but that's not the same as saying they will go up. In a bear market, 95% of all companies go down of all stocks go down. And in a bull market, 95% of all stocks go up. And if you get higher inflation for an extended period of time, then you're eventually going to have lower PE multiples. Um, and, and lower PE multiples mean that all those stocks will go down. So don't think about sectors. Think about asset classes. The And I'll talk about a couple of the asset classes in a second, but you know, the main two, stocks and bonds, the other thing you need to be aware of is that in inflationary environments where people are inflation aware and as investors, they think about it and, and that's a risk that they're concerned about, stocks and bonds become correlated. And so having this balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds, which over the last quarter century has been um, a good returning portfolio that also had lower risk because those asset classes were inversely correlated, that goes away in an inflationary environment. Not only does inflation mean bad things for stocks and bad things for bonds, but it also makes them correlated. And so your risk of of your your 60-40 portfolio also goes up in that sort of environment. So I just said higher inflation is bad for stocks, and we haven't seen that yet. The exception to that is that if if really a, 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 a currency is coming completely unglued, then then sometimes the stock market will do quite well for a while because it's a, it's a place for people to 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 hide from the collapsing currency. We're not in that stage. We're merely at at the point where we have not yet seen interest rates, in particular real interest rates. We have not seen them respond to the higher inflation. We've started to see higher inflation expectations, but the but interest rates themselves have not really responded. And once they do, stocks are going to go down. So higher inflation is bad for stocks. Higher inflation is bad for bonds. It's not as bad for tips, but it's still bad. If, if you hold tips to maturity, then you get paid the change in the price level, and that's nice. Um, if, you hold, if you hold inflation-linked savings bonds, I-bonds, that's a fantastic investment because that doesn't get marked to market against you. But if you own a 10-year tip and real interest rates go from minus 1% to positive 2%, then just like with a regular bond, you're going to have a loss 
a mark-to-market loss for a while unless you hold it to maturity. And since you can't hold a TIPS fund to maturity, it means that TIPS funds in and of themselves tend to not do as well as you would think in inflationary environments. They outperform regular bond funds, but they don't necessarily do well themselves. The problem is we haven't had a good inflationary environment since TIPS were uh, were initially issued in the United States in 1997. And so we don't really, we haven't seen that firsthand yet. And so even though those of us in the inflation world know it's going to happen, there are going to be a lot of people who are quite surprised at how TIPS funds do if if inflation, you know, really gets gets going and, stay, and stays high and, and, and interest rates go up. Um, inflation is good for real estate. It's good for commodities. Um, as always, entry level matters. You can certainly buy real estate that's too expensive. You can buy commodities that are too expensive. Um, I don't think we're at that stage yet, but certainly commodities are much more expensive than they were. Um, the, the way we look at the, the various asset classes, we see that on the risky end of the spectrum, commodities are still extremely cheap compared to stocks, so risky to risky. And on the safe end of the spectrum, TIPS are still uh, cheap relative to fixed rate bonds, um, but expensive in and of, in and of them, themselves and not as cheap as they once were. And so if you were going to take your portfolio and just flip it into something which was inflation aware, you would take your bonds and replace them with inflation-linked bonds. You'd take your stocks, inflation with, replace them with commodities, and you'd end up in roughly the same risk position, but now your stuff actually has some inflation beta to it. Um, nobody really does that, but that's sort of the thought process, thinking about the risky end of, the year of your portfolio and the less risky end of your portfolio. Again, entry level does matter on these things. How about gold? Well, gold is a good long-term hedge for inflation, but it turns out not to be a great short-term hedge um, because it responds a lot to real interest rates. And so when inflation goes up, real interest rates go up, which means tips go down, it means gold sometimes goes down. Uh, and, that's, uh, and that's one of the reasons that gold hasn't been doing a lot. Uh, finally, I should, I should talk about crypto, um, but I'm not going to talk a whole lot about crypto. It's unclear exactly whether or not crypto is, will someday be an inflation hedge. Right now, it, it, you can't say that crypto is an inflation hedge. At some point here, I will do a podcast that will be really interesting, I think, um, focusing on the, uh, the, 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 the fascinating conflict between the mainstreamers, the people who think that you know, cryptocurrency needs to get into the mainstream and be used for, for regular transactions and be accepted in lots and lots of places, um, which implies that you're going to have to, if you want to be in the mainstream, you're going to have to accept some regulation. The conflict between the mainstreamers who believe that and the escape hatchers who like crypto because it's out of government control. So you have this, this fundamental tension uh, between two major camps of crypto enthusiasts. And I think, uh, I think we have to see how that's going to play out. But at, at the very least, right now, there's way too much volatility in the crypto markets to say that they're really an effective, um, effective store of value. Um, so that's asset classes in, in terms of products, you know, what can you go out there? What ETFs can you buy? I mean, there just really aren't a whole lot in real asset space. Real assets 
are are difficult in an ETF space. Um, the lead market makers on whom you depend to have an ETF um, don't really, you know, they, they don't get paid a whole lot to take unusual risks. And and a commodities ETF is an unusual risk compared to the usual equity uh, equity ETF. I mean, if you think about a lead market maker, they're in the the they're in the position of making a tiny bit of money as a market maker um, that they're not guaranteed to make because there are other people can step in. But if the market goes haywire, they end up holding the bag. And so it's not a great position to be a lead market maker. And that's one of the reasons that it's hard to get lead market makers in ETF space for real assets. Um, I happen to know of three ETFs right now that are 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 all effective and and can be launched at any time. Two are are um, uh, have been registered by Simplify ETFs and one by Real Asset Strategies and and. My company helped develop um, all three of those products, um, but we don't know when they'll actually be launched. Hopefully, hopefully soon. But, but there aren't lots of products out there. You know, um, there are some decent, you know, broad commodity funds, and you, of course you can buy GLD if you want gold. And but there there really aren't a ton, and they tend to be very very focused. You know what. What we find when we talk to investors ourselves is that, you know, customers don't have a mental framework for real assets. How should how should an, how should an investor change exposures subsequent to performance, or as conditions change? You know, you sort of you know, people have an idea of what to do with stocks and bonds when stocks go up, stocks go down, you know, you have sort of a mental framework, but how much gold should you hold versus, um, a broader commodities index or, uh, or, or a real estate, um, fund, um, how much, and, and when should you change that? When should you own more gold or less gold? Um, people don't tend to have a, a good framework, and that's where there's a wonderful opportunity for products that do that, that handle um, that, that those mechanics, um, and, but, but they may end up being in mutual fund space rather than the ETF space. Um, there are no futures on inflation, um, which is a tragedy. And at some point here, hopefully that will, is an oversight that will be remedied or re-remedied since there have been a couple of CPI futures markets in the past that did not succeed. Um, but we know what they should look like, and it's just a matter of uh, getting an exchange to actually list them. And I guess sort of the final point in this list of the implications of this new inflationary environment is that as an investor – I think to some extent it's 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 not only what you buy, which instruments, which funds that you invest in. Um, it's it's how you manage the, those exposures. I, I think that again, the passive sixty forty is is not going to work for the next ten years like it has in the last quarter century. You need to be more active and more um, inflation aware. And um, I actually wrote a book uh, 
um, in 2016 called What's Wrong With Money? Um, I don't know if you, uh, you know, Venmo me $15 and I'll send you a copy of the book. I, I still have a bunch of them in my basement here. But, um, and it's, it's a decent book, but, but part three of the book is how to invest in an inflation-aware way, kind of an easy way to do it and, and in sort of a more complex way of, of looking at things. Um, but, but the bottom line is that you, you're not going to be able, there is no portfolio that I can identify that's a fire and forget portfolio. Again, we'd like to have some products that make things more fire and forget. Like the, the three products I mentioned earlier, the, the one from Real Asset Strategies, that's a multi-asset portfolio, but it's active. And the two that I mentioned from Simplify, which are, are more focused on particular uh, uh, particular asset classes, but add convexity and, 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 by the way, do the asset classes in a kind of a smarter way, um, are sort of an attempt to do that. Um, but the bottom line is that you're just going to have to to be more active and inflation aware. Um, and, you know, if that isn't you, then you need to find a manager who's more inflation aware. Now, the good news is that if you are listening to this, then you're already taking steps to become more inflation aware. And congratulations. You know, I do really appreciate you listening and downloading this podcast. I appreciate that you refer this uh, this podcast to your friends and that you like it and forward it and 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 so on. And uh, and I like to hear from you. You can write to me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com or you can fill out the uh, the contact form on the enduringinvestments.com website. Um, you can uh, we have the Inflation Guy app, of course, that you can download in your Google Play Store or your Apple Store. And from within the app, you can also send me an email. So there's lots of ways to get in contact with the Inflation Guy. And if you're interested in what it is we do, um, if, if you think you're the type of client that we can help, then, then certainly reach out and let's have a conversation. And whether we do have a conversation or we exchange emails or you just sit there quietly and think deep thoughts about what it is that we've been talking about today, Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton, and I am the Inflation Guy. Defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs>